I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ben Weingarten. And I'm Ina Stepman. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the M.M. Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everyone. As usual, we have a well-rounded and pretty newsy show for you today. So Ben is going to kick us off with the rumors that have been going on for days now about the potentially looming indictment of the 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. We will have lots of takes on that, I am sure. Inez will then talk about President Biden's first veto, if I'm not mistaken, of his entire presidency. It was in it was in an anti-ESG bill, so a uh, lot to discuss on that. Emily will talk about this recent rendezvous between uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin in Moscow, and then I will kind of stay on the foreign policy front and take us home by rounding up the show with a perspective on the Iraq war 20 years after the U.S. troops marched into Baghdad. So, Ben, why don't you get us started here? Well, uh, we're recording on Wednesday, and news just broke just before we started recording that there would be a surprise, no grand jury convening uh, in New York today. Typically, as I understand it, the grand jury convenes Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. There will be none today. This comes on the heels of uh, potentially sort of damning public testimony given by lawyer Robert Costello, who had previously represented Michael Cohen, who is supposedly the star witness in this case that we're going to be discussing, I guess, the merits and politics of today, which is this impending potential indictment of former President Donald Trump in New York by a Soros DA, Soros-backed DA, Alvin Bragg, who has failed to prosecute uh, numerous crimes in New York City, but here appears to be trying to conjure one up, uh, a novel case, as even those on the left acknowledge, to pursue these charges against President Trump. Uh, these are considered, I think, probably the weakest, according to legal experts, of any of the charges that are potentially outstanding against him in venues from New York to Georgia, and then obviously to D.C. as well. And President Trump himself sort of announced that this was coming via social media and called on folks to protest on his behalf, which I think one of the remarkable elements of this is the fact that the the sort of widespread response was, why protest when we're going to end up like January Sixers in pretrial detention for months uh, and you're going to have the feds infiltrating, et cetera. And that was sort of the tongue in cheek, but also serious reaction uh, certainly across the Twitter sphere, which I think in and of itself speaks to how far beyond the Rubicon we've gone from the Mar-a-Lago raid to now, that people would be afraid to protest, to exercise a constitutional right, precisely because they see how the powers that be, the ruling class, has used that as a pretext to crack down on individuals and eviscerate liberty and justice in this country. Uh, I would say it at the outset of this that I think that to the extent the, this indictment does go forward, this is banana republic, third world territory, and that we should think of ourselves as operating in a fundamentally different country than the one we grew up in, period, full stop. Uh, we can talk about you know, the charges that are being bandied about. It appears to be that there's an effort to use these extortive uh, hush money, so-called payments, to claim that business records were falsified around the classification of those payments, and then 
as well to move this from a misdemeanor to a felony, that actually these were campaign finance uh, contributions that were characterized otherwise, and so that there was then intent to commit a crime on top of the purported falsification of these records. There's a whole bunch of legal maneuvering that you have to follow to get to this point. There are issues around state versus federal crimes potentially at play. The fact that on the campaign finance side, the feds themselves have refused to pursue any such charges uh, pertaining to the facts of this purported case. We can talk about statutes of limitation at play and beyond. I think it's all, frankly, secondary or even tertiary to the fact that this is obviously a show me the man, I'll show you the crime. And I was doing a little thought experiment before about all of this quote unquote novel sorts of grounds that have been used to go after anyone and everyone who dares dissent from ruling class orthodoxy. And we can go back to raising of the Logan Act with Michael Flynn and false statement charges that the agents actually thought were true statements at the time, this Douglas Mackey case where they're talking about using disinformation to deprive people of the right to vote. So trying to throw a memester in jail. Obviously, Farah has been used and abused of late. And then, of course, obstruction of an official proceeding, which was a Sarbox, Sarbanes-Oxley related charge leveled for the first time, really, in any kind of analogous case with the J6ers. And we can go on and on. This is the utter evisceration of our legal system. It is obviously the pursuit by a current regime of the predecessor presidency and front runner in the Republican field going into the 2024 campaign. Um, so none of this is new, but I think, I don't know if you all share this, but I have a sinking feeling around this akin to the Mar-a-Lago raid because it's almost worse in some ways that they're coming up, they're conjuring up with the most asinine possible set of charges here to try to pursue the president, former president, as the opening shot into other charges likely to come from other venues. Uh, the rule of law is just gone. It's totally eviscerated in this country. It's a banana republic. Uh, and I'm not sure how we get out of this morass, but I think that in terms of our orientation, in terms of our thinking about politics, about law, and about the state of our republic, we have to operate under the assumption that we're operating in a fundamentally different country today. So I don't know that I necessarily have the antidote, uh, but I'd open it up. You know, what are your takes on all this? Obviously, there's many hot takes about you know what does this mean for 2024, and does this boost Trump's chances in the primary and hurt him in the general, et cetera, et cetera. We can talk through all of those issues. We can talk about Governor Ron DeSantis's response to this. Uh, open. Uh, I think we ought to open the conversation to any and all threads. I think the conventional wisdom that this helps Trump is wrong. Um, I'm open to being wrong myself on that point. Um, I don't think it's helpful for anybody to have the photo op of being perp walk. Whether or not Bragg actually does perp walk him is a different question. He certainly wouldn't have to. Uh, but you know, the the they're sort of foaming at the mouth over this opportunity. So it's easy to see him making that decision. Trump, according to the New York Times, if we believe the failing New York Times, uh, is also sort of eager for this uh, photo op opportunity. But on that note, um, I, I just all I wanted to say was emphasize the point Ben made about having a sinking feeling. When this news started to play out last week, my stomach literally dropped um, I, because it's just a, a very, very frightening. It's sort of like I'm thinking about this because of the SVB stuff, but it was sort of like in 2008, how you just see some of those headlines that would be like a 
a punch in the gut and it all cascaded and snowballed into what became the great recession. And this feels like that on a different scale um, that we're, we're cascading into banana Republic territory. Uh, the house oversight uh, Republicans released really damning information about the Biden family last week, showing transactions between um, a Chinese company, a Biden business associate, and then all of these Biden family members to the tune of about a million dollars in the span of several weeks in 2017. Media barely touched it. So imagine the media barely touching any of this and then um, uh, Trump being arrested. I mean, it, it is just not a healthy recipe. It, it is not a recipe for healing. It's a it's a recipe for uh, sinking further into division um, and rancor. And and finally, in this case, it's not justified because we're ratcheting up a, a misdemeanor at best to felony, which makes it so 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 much worse. Yeah, I I would only underscore a few points that both Ben and uh, Emily have made. Um, one. Uh, you know, the above the law point that keeps getting thrown back. I, I said this during the Mara Lago raids, um, but I think it's worth repeating here, uh, which is that, you know, we have this norm. Everyone's always talking about norms on the left, right? We have this norm for a reason. We don't arrest the, the domestic political opposition, right? Which is not to say that they're above the law. If like Donald Trump shot someone on Fifth Avenue with a bunch of witnesses, right? Nobody would question this. But but to break that kind of 250 year, very critical norm of, of being very cautious about applying a weaponized, you know, even the appearance of a, of a, a two tiered justice system on the side of the regime versus the side of domestic opposition uh, is so serious that basically, if you're going to do this, you better have like some very, very serious crimes with very, very like solid evidence. And it appears that Bragg doesn't have that. And the crimes on themselves, the crimes on, on their face, even if they're true, are very minor. Um, in, in the case of, of the this filing, um, it essentially amounts to a bookkeeping error that is only a felony if we can prove that Trump really did it for his campaign and not so that his wife would find out about it. Like this is the sort of stuff that, that this case would turn on um, and I think it's just, it's not the stuff, it makes it even more obviously political, right? Um, and with regard to the, the political reaction, right? Um, ben, I think really importantly brought up the fact that there has been very little protest is actually, I think, both a good thing in the sense that I think it means that people are waking up to the kind of regime that they live under. But I think it's an indication, I don't think it's an indication as some of the, the gloating, um, sort of left-wing headlines have been, oh, like Trump doesn't have a base anymore. No, I think people are realizing that the, the legal system and the rule of law, they cannot count on the application of the rule of law that coming out to protest for Donald Trump, especially in blue states, and this is something that um, our friend Jesse Kelly also has been hitting on, is actually dangerous under this regime. And I think that that knowledge has disseminated uh, among a large part of Trump's voters, and that's worth noting as depressing as it is, um, and as true as it is, I think. Uh, and then finally, there, there's just the, the additional knife in the gut about this. You know, Donald J. Trump is the only person Alvin Bragg is even remotely interested in prosecuting, you know, in the city of New York. Right. Um, this is a guy who wanted to knock down uh, armed assault um, and, and not arrest people and not charge people who are committing violent felonies in the state of New York. Uh, so I just think that's worth worth noting. This is this is a Soros back DA. This is a, um, a an activist DA who basically, as a principle, does not believe in in enforcing the rule of law, and yet he's going for these like you know ticky tack charges in a highly politicized way against Donald Trump. 
All right, three quick points in, in very quick succession. One is on the substantive merits of the charges. This is obviously frivolous. I, I, I don't even feel a need, frankly, to unpack it. My very liberal, lifelong Democrat grandfather was over for Sunday brunch last Sunday. Even he was laughing to me and said, this is obviously absurd. It is, it is facially stupid. My, um, so uh, there's that. The second part, though, that we have not commented on and I feel does need to comment is that I think that Trump and some in his most innermost circle their reaction to immediately try to shift tactics and not talk about Alvin Bragg, but talk about what will DeSantis do? Will he stop this? Is also frankly absurd. And it is absurd for two reasons. One is that Trump himself has openly and fairly explicitly talked about the fact that he is voluntarily and happily going to surrender himself. He will fly up to Manhattan. He will enter his his charges in person. And that's fairly obvious because Trump sees himself rightfully in this case as the victim and the martyr and, and, and being the victim and the martyr is his most natural element. Also, constitutionally speaking, we're not going to go deep here, but Article 4, Section 2, Clause 2 uses the word shall, shall on demand of the executive authority from which the person is fleeing. There is really no room for discretion here. That was affirmed in 1987 Supreme Court case called Puerto Rico versus Branstad. So the legal argument fails as well. The final thing, and real quick, and then we'll transition back to Inez here, is that it just reminds me of something that I have said on this show many times, is that the only way out here is through people. The only way out is through. The pendulum has shifted so far to one side. If Republican prosecutors across the country in our own jurisdictions are not going to start trying to weaponize the rule of law within the confines of prudence and reason back to at least get us back to somewhat of a stable equilibrium, then we are all screwed. So uh, the pressure from right-wing activists across the country has to be on Republican prosecutors to, within the confines of prudence and reason, reciprocate in kind that has all sorts of ramifications for Fauci, the Biden family, things of that nature. But we'll kick it now over to Inez for a uh, separate topic on uh, Joe Biden and ESG. Yes. So uh, this week, Joe Biden issued his first veto against a bipartisan piece of legislation passed the Senate 50 to 46. Of course, side note here, that's because uh, there are two Democratic senators who are more or less incapacitated and not showing up, Dianne Feinstein and, and uh, Fetterman. Right. Um, but but nevertheless, you know, there, there are two Democratic votes on this in the Senate. Um, and, and that was to overturn a Biden Labor Department regulation that was issued that gave fund managers broader powers um, to take into account ESG factors when making investment decisions. And this is with people's retirements, right? And not just 401k, but also pensions that uh, for states and, and so on and so forth, right? So um, so that's the background, which sounds very boring, but I think it's, it's actually extremely important. Um, basically a lot of what we we call um woke capital right there are there are incentives investment incentives built in that to essentially have the corporate sphere um go ahead and not only invest their money but put into their advertisements um, all the things that um annoy a lot of conservatives when they watch ads right um basically their allegiance to a whole series of woke causes well that's not just because of the fact that they have young employees coming out of universities although that is an important factor it's also because now major hedge funds are looking at these scores it's esg scores um, when they determine for example who to lend money to um, and, and that actually shifts the financial um, incentives within the, the quote unquote free market, which is not a free market, um, in favor of companies doing a lot of this essentially social activism. So it makes it harder for Republicans like Ron DeSantis or others um, 
to to for example threaten disney right it, it makes it so that disney's not just afraid of political consequences they're then on the other side afraid of financial consequences losing their rating and therefore losing their ability um even for example to go to banks and 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 take out money um and this this has all come to a head i think through a lot of um energy companies right uh and and I think this has the potential now that Biden's vetoed. First of all, it shows where the Biden administration is. And I think it's very interesting. The veto message that he put forth with it was was not anything about the actual substance of ESG. It was, hey, Republicans are trying to, uh, you know, screw working people um, by by making uh, poorer financial decisions with their investments or allowing poorer financial decisions with those investments. He's trying to make essentially the economic argument that economic argument rests on a series of platitudes that I think this downturn in the economy is going to start to blow up. One of them is that ESG investments are going are inherently doing better. Um, that there, there actually there is actually an economic positive, not just a political argument for things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. The company, the argument, the platitude goes right. The company that ha that invests in diversity, equity, inclusion will, will have more voices in their boardroom, and they'll be better prepared to sell to a multi ethnic market. Right. Um, th those things sound nice, and they've been poured in CEOs' ears for a long time. I think we're going to see the rubber meet the road on some of these things. And I think that's continuing. It's going to continue to be a really important um, debate as some of those bottom lines start to, to dry up. And you have examples of CEOs like Elon Musk who are, are actually looking to cut the fat of a lot of this stuff that will start to impact their quote unquote, their ESG scores. And therefore what kind of money uh, they'll have access to in terms of venture capital, all of this stuff, our entire financial system is set up in favor of a lot of this stuff um, and has been set slowly set up that way since the the last financial crash in 2008 when you know basically i think the 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 public perception was the financial sector got away with murder and and were bailed out and did not suffer for it and therefore the response over the, the last couple decades from that sector has been well look at us we're good corporate citizens we care about all of these woke things um without changing the underlying financial um, structures or or the fact that bailouts create massive incentive for malinvestment. So um, I think this is going to be, I think this is going to roll into the SVB stuff. It's going to roll into um, as we move potentially towards a recession. I, I think this is going to continue to pop up, um, but important to see Joe Biden, as always, uh, kind of delivering the, the old school Democrat labor message out of one side of his mouth while literally um, doing the exact opposite and actually weighing in on the, the side of, of um, cultural wokeism and even at the expense potentially of working men and women's retirement investments and, and the returns they can get on those investments. So with that, I'll kick it out. So I think the latter thing that Inez said is very interesting. Um, I, I hadn't really thought of, I mean, the ESG fight from the rights perspective is just so logical and commonsensical for any number of reasons, but I never thought of it as a possible kind of accelerant of sorts for the right to kind of um, adopt a more kind of um, uh, working class political posture or to try to kind of secure and retain and and, and messaging and re like rhetorically appeal to working class voters. I think that's absolutely fascinating when you kind of frame it like that. I've never really thought about the ESG debate through that particular lens, but that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I think it's also just extremely telling Right. It's extremely telling that this is the first time that Joe Biden, more than halfway into his first term, first and hopefully only term, I should say, um, has wielded his veto pen. I mean, what does that say about his priorities? Uh, I mean, just how far 
is he, you know, in hock to the woke forces that would have him kind of stand up on this? And it totally cuts against the broader narrative, by the way, that Joe Biden is somehow tacking to the center in advance of 2024. So a lot of people are saying that Joe Biden, through various things, uh, through his, um, you know, his non-veto of the D.C. crime bill override, through his um, restoration, or at least his kind of floating the possibility of restoration of some Trump-era immigration policies, through his budget that we are told is kind of a deficit reduction budget. It really is no such thing. But through we are told that he is tapping to the center in advance of 2024. And I think this this veto, uh, this completely ideologically zealous, we might say, veto that goes directly against the interests of pensioners and retirees is just a reminder that he is not tacking to the center, that he very much is still largely indistinguishable for probably 90 to 95%, maybe 98% of the issues uh, from his far left flank. So I, I would just add a couple of things. This not only shows the extent to which Biden is in hock to woke forces, but also to Wall Street and you know the ranks of BlackRock and presumably other very major players in the financial services industry <laughs> do populate senior positions throughout the Biden administration. And you know, BlackRock is sort of the face of the ESG movement. And so what is uh, a vetoing this blocking of the Department of Labor's rule, which now says that those who are the fiduciaries for investors ought to be are allowed to consider ESG uh, factors as opposed to pecuniary factors, i.e., generating the most profit on behalf of those for whom they invest. Uh, well, it also this is in some ways uh, keeps Wall Street's gravy train going because billions and billions of dollars have flowed into, in fact, trillions of dollars have flowed into ESG in the last two decades. And those ESG funds often charge higher rates than normal funds for these companies. So this is a, ESG is a massive boon to the financial services industry. And this, in effect, serves as something like a bailout, particularly if you have those running plans like 401ks or pension plans who are going to limit your investing options to include ESG funds. Let's also note that it's not just the pensioners and those with 401ks who are going to be hurt by this, but it's also, to the extent, obviously, the ESG movement proceeds apace, it's going to be everyone, and particularly those who face, in effect, regressive taxes in the way of massively escalating energy and food costs and other costs that the ruling class is effectively insulated from. So on, you know, the, on the economic merits, on the you know, theoretical merits, and then in terms of just political logic and you know the strength of a populist message here in every single way this is a disaster uh, from should be a disaster from the perspective of democrats obviously they won't see it that way but to josh's point of course this is telling this shows you where the president's priorities really are or at least where he thinks his political power really comes from and it shows you kind of the myth of the idea that this is the pro-labor working class joe biden presidency yeah, I'm glad that that's where we landed because I don't have a ton to add. The what I did want to add though is exactly that. Um, the, the Harvard Law did a long analysis that's very dense with legalese on the difference between the Trump Labor Department rule and the Biden Labor Department rule. They conclude that you know that there's some word tweaks that are meaningful, but overall they said it, it, it's not much of a change. Now I am not a lawyer like. Uh, 
Ben and I both are not a lawyer. If you continue to get that inside joke, you're uh, really in the NatCon squad with us um, in spirit. Um, but I, I'm not a lawyer like uh, Josh and Inez. Um, but I, f- I found the, that fairly persuasive that the distinction between the Trump and Biden rule isn't a huge hugely meaningful one but that biden not only does what he does with this veto but publicizes it on twitter films a video invokes marjorie taylor green in his decision to veto this rule that tells you everything you need to know and it tells you that exactly everything ben josh and Inez laid out is politically what's motivating biden here they really 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 cannot get over esg that's bad for the country but it's also very bad for the democratic party it's so it's so big of a commitment for them now they they can't really uh get over it so on that note i'm going to transition to myself huge huge news in eastern europe as president xi and vladimir putin met this week for a two-day summit they toasted to each other with some white wine had all kinds of friendly words for one another this comes after china negotiated uh what looks at least preliminarily like a deal between saudi arabia and iran last week in a in a move that some people said looked like China was attempting to usurp America and usurp the West as the sort of moral authority with the credibility to engage in the sort of uh, deal brokering on the world on the world stage as they did last week. I have a quote in front of me that I wanted to read from um, Putin this week. So he says, This is actually from Xi. He says, together we should push forward these changes that have not happened for 100 years. And he said that during his goodbye handshake with Putin, according to CNN, um, they they talked about the political solution that uh, Xi Jinping has proposed in Ukraine, um, which would amount to essentially like a ceasefire. Um, Zelensky says it's a non-starter because it would allow Russia to just kind of regroup and not leave Ukrainian territory that they're occupying and continue its assault forward. Um, Putin has said, quote, many of the provisions could be, quote, taken as the basis for a settlement. Uh, So clearly you can see what Xi Jinping is doing in Russia this week, about $12 million worth of Chinese uh, drones, a drop in the bucket compared to what we've spent on this war, uh, have been used and, and wielded against the Ukrainians by Vladimir Putin. But uh, I, I think, you know, for all of our disagreements about the United States's involvement in this conflict, none of us disagree that what Vladimir Putin is doing is uh, a, a humanitarian disaster that he is ultimately in the invasion the invader thus the aggressor and so xi jinping's decision to stand beside him toast the man who has instigated this invasion with white wine and pretend to be impartial in the conflict that is such a clarifying factor and should be such a clarifying factor for anybody who is seduced by China. For anybody who's feeling down on the United States and and says, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't be sort of the the leader on the world stage. You know, maybe other people can fill this power vacuum. Fine, argue that we're too involved on the world stage. I'm I'm mostly in agreement with that. But if if we 
leave a vacuum, it's going to be filled by China. Um, and that will have implications, not just for people in Russia, not just for people in Ukraine, but for people in the United States inevitably, because we all have nuclear weapons. And that means our borders are all right next to each other, whether we like it or not. What did you guys make of the summit this week? So I, I, I guess for me, I mean, I, I, I have, I guess, a slightly kind of I mean, I don't want to call my take edgy in advance. Maybe it's not that edgy, but um, I, I mean, I, I was kind of waiting for someone to kind of give somewhat of a more, uh, a, you know, like a higher level take before I kind of give my take. So my take on this is, look, we know China is is evil. China is the number one geopolitical foe of the United States this century. That is fairly undisputed. I think all four of us would readily agree with that, no matter how much there are still um, many recalcitrant elements of the bipartisan union party that are resistant to recognize China for the threat that it is. But what I would say to this, and I was actually discussing this with a friend at dinner earlier this week, to me, these photos of Xi and Vladimir toasting, and this is not the first time that they have had these very kind of cozy photo ops together, it to me just underscores the insanity um, of U.S. current policy and its approach to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and frankly to Russia in large swaths of kind of the post-Cold War era in general. So Russia is obviously the biggest country in the world by landmass. China is the third largest country in the world by landmass, Canada being second, although so much of it is obviously uninhabited. If you look at literally at a map, if you look at Russia and China combined, that is a huge, a huge menacing and threatening part of Eurasia, of the of the broader Eurasian landmass. And while I have no delusions, no delusions of grandeur about what is in, you know, kind of the political history of Russia and the various kind of terrible regimes from the czars to the Bolsheviks to Putin, you know, they, 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 there's really very little in the way of kind of fertile soil there, you might say, for kind of Madisonian, Tocquevillian democracy or anything like that. But having said all of that, you know, from a sheer kind of realpolitik perspective here and kind of sobering up to the to, to the uh, reality that we are currently in a multipolar world and the rest of our adults' lives may well be in a multipolar world where China is clearly a superpower, is clearly already and is only going to increasingly going to be a regional hegemon. And this whole summit and these photo ops of Xi and Putin just underscored to me the myopia and the general short-sightedness of the U.S. just continuing, continuing to further and further and further entrench itself by provoking Russia, provoking Russia, only making kind of this reverse Nixon to China possible move, which was probably already a long shot, but only making that just so much of a long shot that it is borderline just at this point, uh, frankly, inconceivable. So um, that was my takeaway from the sun. But the fact that Russia and China are cozy on the geopolitical stage is is is, is nothing particularly new. They they are obviously both also cozy with the Iranian regime, um, you know, so uh, but it's it, it's bad stuff. I mean, there's no way to look at this photo op of Xi and Putin in Moscow and smile about it. It's obviously quite nefarious. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, my realpolitik, as we discussed a couple of episodes ago, is quite my realpolitik assessment of this is quite different. I You know, every 
every administration, American administration, right, has tried to reset relations with Russia uh, to absolutely no avail to the extent that there was ever possible to pull this kind of reverse Nixon to China move um, with Russia. I think certainly it died with the Russiagate hysteria domestically in the United States which made it very difficult for the Trump administration to be seen as being friendly to Russia. So to the extent that there was ever a chance, which I doubt to begin with, I think it it died uh, with our own facetious and, and you know, hoax-like investigation uh, into, into Russiagate. But I don't think there was much chance of it ever. I mean, I, I, I think um, that there, there are elements of Russian culture and, and Russian governance that will always be at odds um, with the West. And I, I similarly have no delusions about a, a like sort of democratic or liberal Russia. I don't think that is in the cards at all. Um, but that being said, I think I um, once analyzing this and once looking at the fact that they are cozy and I think that it would be foolish for us to think that we can break apart that coziness at this point, um, even if we disagree on to what extent it might have been possible three years ago or five years ago, certainly now, um, I think it's it's not really possible and we have to regard them both as uh, essentially Russia being the the uh, larger partner here and, and, and I'm sorry, China being the larger partner and, and um, Russia being the junior partner, uh, in which case, you know, um, showing that or denying uh, Putin control, for example, of key resources in Ukraine is very important to U.S. national interest. But I, th I think there is no real way at this point to, to split those two countries, um, those two rivals of the United States, one much more important in terms of, of capacity, and that would be China. Um, I don't think there's really any any uh, real way to split them apart at this point. Well, uh, obviously, it's tough to engage in the counterfactuals. Uh, I would say that just as much as the U.S. and Russia have differences, uh, historical, cultural, political, so too have Russia and China historically as well. Now, they still view us as, uh, you know, the hegemonic world power to ultimately be toppled or at least balanced against. But I think it is worth noting that it's not as if Russia and China are natural partners, uh, let alone allies. And it's uh, beyond unfortunate that we've ended up where we are with Russia, China, Iran, and a whole slew of other malign regimes all balanced and aligned against us. What would be in America's you know, strategic interest would be to seek to divide them and play them against each other in whatever ways and using whatever tools we can. Obviously, we've gone in the complete opposite direction, essentially. I would also just raise, because I think it's worth underscoring this point, who benefited most from Russiagate? And I would say that China is the power that benefited most from Russia Gates. Uh, and that's something that should never be forgotten when we talk about it, but often is because there are a whole slew of other uh, horribles in the parade of horribles associated with Russia Gate. Um, the, the last thing I would say is you know, there's obvious strategic incoherence here as well as, well, apparent strategic incoherence here as well, if you were looking at this from the perspective of what is America's national interest. When you have the Biden administration, and I think the Biden administration's effective policy, and this ought to be stated loudly and clearly, is regime change in Israel, putting the screws to the Netanyahu administration and anyone on the Israeli right, essentially, at the very time that the Biden administration continues to bend over backwards for a nuclear deal with Iran, which should be seen as a nuclear deal in effect with Russia and China as well, because obviously a nuclearized Iran will ultimately serve to their benefit. The fact that China negotiated what appears to be some kind of detente between the Saudis and Iran is obviously, I've, I believe, disastrous as well, although some have said that they, you ought to take a more measured look at that. 
Um, I also think, by the way, just to go back to that counterfactual one more time, because it's worth saying, you know, is it any more unlikely that the Trump administration could have helped to create wedges between Russia and China than that we would have had the Abraham Accords? I think it's an interesting debate that maybe we could have down the road. Uh, but last but not least, these powers, I think first and foremost, we ought to be thinking about what they're trying to do to create an alternative to the U.S. as the world's reserve currency, because I think they view that as the ultimate starting point of the death knell of America and their ascendance. And as we move towards you know, a central bank digital currency here, which follows in China's footsteps, by the way, I think we're paving the path to the best interest of China and Russia, not America's national interest. All right. So let's stay on the foreign policy topic and take us home here with a segment on the 20-year anniversary of the Bush-led U.S. invasion of Iraq. I remember it vividly. It was March 2003. I was sitting in, in Nick Nardulo's eighth grade classroom. It was kind of right around the time that I was first starting to follow um, you know, current affairs. And, and I remember kind of the visuals on, on TV of, of, of the bombs and the explosions and all of that. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to think about here. Um, 20 years. I mean, the fact that Ben referenced Iran there is kind of a nice segue because there is no more foreign power that is that is more deeply ingrained in Iraqi political fabric to this day than the Iranian regime, which I think says kind of all you need to know about the success or lack thereof of the prolonged U.S. occupation and and, and presence there. Obviously, kind of the uh, you know the initial reason or at least the purported reason that we were told for the bush administration to go into iraq um the so-called wmds weapons of mass destruction that saddam hussein was told to have had simply did not hold up uh, there has been no evidence 20 years later that they ever existed um some others including dickett dick cheney and his wife uh, lynn cheney also argued that saddam hussein had had deep long-standing ties to al-qaeda i think that is also seriously uh, in doubt uh, at best. Uh, probably, probably wrong, outright wrong at worst. And I, I think it is, you know, it, it it is probably not a stretch to to say that the general kind of chaos that the Iraq War ultimately resulted in, and the various kind of civil warring and the ethnic sectarian warfare, in large part, helped to give rise to the Islamic State, to ISIS. And, you know, here we are 20 years later, and Iraq is extremely far from kind of this, you know, this flourishing bastion of, of Madisonian Tocquevillian democracy that I think many in the Bush administration and many in kind of the neoconservative intellectual class, kind of the, the old weekly standard masthead, those kind of folks um, is very far, to, to put it mildly, from what those folks would have thought that it might be. And I guess if I could think of kind of the antithesis of what the NACON approach to foreign policy is and ought to be, I kind of think to President George W. Bush's second inaugural address and the infamous so-called freedom agenda, where he basically kind of announces this, this universalist creed that, that the human soul kind of desires freedom everywhere, no matter who you are, what culture you were born into, you know. After the failure to find WMDs and and all of that, that kind of quickly became that kind of quickly became um, the ideological lodestar for the United States and kind of the West broader occupation of Iraq was kind of pursuing this freedom agenda. I think it is very similar to the reason that was uh, given by Samantha Power and Hillary Clinton back in 2011 when they went into Libya. 
Here we are 12 years later. The country of Libya is still riven by jihadist civil war. That country is also in, in, in pretty terrible, dire straits. Afghanistan, we have covered on the show many times. The Taliban obviously controls that country. So what does all that say about the success or lack thereof of, of nation-building crusades across the world? Well, it obviously does not say a, a whole lot of good. And look, the reality is that Saddam Hussein was obviously a very bad man. I mean, no one here would would, would ever kind of pretend that he was a good person the same way that no one would ever say that Bashar al-Assad. I mean, you know, uh, Syria is not a country that, that, that gets currently talked about a whole lot, but for large swaths of the second Obama term, there was a lot of fairly hot and open debate as to what the U.S. approach to Syria should be. You know, should the U.S. launch um, a, a regime change mission in Syria? I mean, the Syrian civil war is one of the most undercovered and under-discussed humanitarian tragedies of the past decade. I mean, the death toll there, the chemical weapons there, it is abhorrent. It is absolutely abominable. But, you know, would would can we guarantee that Syria would be better from a pro-U.S., pro-Western perspective if Bashar al-Assad were toppled? I mean, who knows what would come into place? I mean, we would probably just get ISIS or al-Qaeda, al-Nusra front, all that all over again. So, you know, look, I mean, this is nothing particularly novel, nothing particularly new, but I think the lessons of the Iraq war 20 years later is just a deeply, deeply sobering reminder of the limits in the United States military, which from my perspective, frankly, exists to hunt down and kill the enemy in the least dangerous, most efficient way possible, period, full stop, end of story. It is not there. It is not the Peace Corps. It is not the United Nations. It is not, you know, a, an ideological kind of belching of trying to spread freedom or democracy or whatever. Um, so I, I'd be curious if any of you guys have different takes, but you know, the experience in Iraq, I know really, really, really sobered my views. My very first foray into politics, again, I was in eighth grade when this happened. I, I, I was kind of a prototypical like Bush neocon in like middle school and high school, and then kind of you know, realizing after the fact what happened, I think very kind of slowly led me to be kind of on the path to I think where I am now. I'm kind of curious what your guys' kind of personal uh, views and kind of substantive takes are as well. Um, well. First of all, I think it's important to remember that uh, both the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq initially were started in a kind of Jacksonian impulse of, of the U.S.'s posture after 9-11. Um, and I think you're right to say that they degenerated, both of them, into this kind of Wilsonian um, idea of of uh, building, you know, nation building and, and um, spreading to cultures wholly hostile uh, with no history, uh, a type of, of Madisonian democracy. And um, th there were similar mistakes made, I think, uh, one that I'm sure Josh would, would point out as well, um, the, the support in 2006 for elections uh, that ended up electing Hamas, right? Um, that's, that was another Bush administration uh, dedication to the idea that all peoples are equally fit for freedom um, and there's no cultural antecedent required or history or um, any any semblance of the rule of law or any other sort of um, antecedent for the the um, actual implementation of democracy. Um, and, and that's a, a view that would have been very foreign to our founders, not just in terms of foreign policy, but in terms of, of the nature of man, right, um, and the nature of, of freedom. Um, so I, I think that's an important lesson to 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 draw as i said a couple times ago as well i do think that there should be a great deal of sort of realpolitik and prudence to attach to that we do have a tendency to always fight the last war which is 
part of the reason that we got mired as as badly as we did right um in iraq because the the last experience of american generals and the american public was sort of a triumphalist one uh, in the first gulf war uh, and i don't think that they anticipated how difficult the task ahead of them was going to be um and and so i think it's important always to to try to think outside of the lessons of only the last war while also um obviously importing you know it's it's not like we're going to ignore uh, what happened in the last war um the third point that i would like to make is as i think increasingly we're going to see one of two things both sort of equally horrifying to me one of two possibilities uh, the first is that the us domestic uh, degeneration um, division and, and institutional capture by uh, wokeness, or, or I hate that word, but you know, what else can you say, um, is, is uh, going to result in so much incompetence that we are not able to project power around the world. Um, this is the, you know, sort of withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, problem, right? Even if you agree with the end goal of withdrawal, uh, we were not able to competently execute it, right? Uh, so that's that's one uh, horrifying possibility. The U.S. simply won't be able to enforce its interests around the world, uh, even in a realpolitik sense. So the second one, almost more horrifying, um, when we look at the inroads this ideology is making into the military, is is that uh, we become an evil empire ourselves, right? That that U.S. Uh, U.S. influence abroad, we still end up being the tallest midget. Um, that China and Russia have deep problems of their own, um, and and I think the the failure uh, to drive to Kiev and topple that government um, highlights that uh, very very starkly. Actually, these these are powers with deep deep weaknesses of their own. The U.S. very well could could uh, you know result in being sort of a woke empire in the in the world, um, even though our our competency is so obviously declining um, with with the introduction of this ideology. So that's that's the big picture stuff. But since we're doing sort of a retrospective on the last twenty years, that's mine. Yeah. So I, I think from my vantage point, I'll probably repeat a kind of the tried and true, but I think fundamentals of national security and foreign policy that. Uh, the failures in Iraq underscore uh, one of them being you have to know your enemy and know yourself. And I think we knew neither in terms of what our mission and purpose ought to be as a country and therefore what we ought to do when interacting with the world. And then also who the folks were that we were actually engaging with respect to Iraq and to focus a little more on that point for a second. You know, essentially, if you look at it in retrospect, George Bush paved the way for George W. Bush paved the way for the Barack Obama and Joe Biden agenda of making Iran the strong force in the Middle East, because by pulling first Saddam Hussein out of power and then engaging in debathification, this made Iraq, in effect, a client or proxy or at least partial kind of proxy for Iran, therefore allowing it to project substantially more power in the region. And this goes to, again, not only not knowing our enemies, but then also not having some humility and prudence to know that to the extent you are going to destabilize the entire structure that's holding a powder keg from exploding within a country of sectarian violence, uh, that ultimately if you destabilize that, that's going to have massive repercussions. And oftentimes it's going to go sideways from the perspective of America's national interest. So there were failures on the front end, on top of which not only did we not clearly define what our mission was there and a mission that could actually be attained probabilistically and was achievable, but then beyond that, obviously, we had no exit strategy as well. And 
you know, these are just kind of basic fundamentals that you have to consider in matters of national security and foreign policy. We didn't then. I suspect we don't now. And worse, to Inez's point, uh, we've probably sapped the morale of our troops. We have probably, by dint of our wrong choices, and now the wokeism within the military are deterring others who ought to join from joining our military. So it's not clear that were we in the right war at the right time with the right mission, that we would actually be able to properly and adequately execute it with the people who are in power. So it's disasters all around on top of, of course, the lives lost and the, and the do dollars in treasure as well expended uh, as a consequence of the uh, invasion there and then the Iraq war as well. So disastrous all around massively beneficial to our enemies while China continued biding its time and also gaining valuable intelligence about how we would interact in these kinds of engagements. So all around uh, disaster from the perspective of the U.S. national interest. And again, I would just note the irony that it was effectively the George W. Bush policy that contributed to the endpoint of the Barack Obama and now Joe Biden policy of making Iran the strong horse in the region the world's leading state sponsor of jihad, as even our, even this state department acknowledges. Uh, not to usurp Josh, but I'll just fold this into final thoughts since we're out of time in the Iraq segment, because um, I can basically say all I need to say about it um, with the uh, entire episode sort of in the rearview mirror here, tying things together. Uh, it, it's a it's obviously a different country than the one that we grew up in, very different than the one that our parents grew up in. Um, as we were we were coming of age, whether we were teenagers or in our 20s, um, what unfolded in Iraq, I think, forever changed uh, the American people's opinion of their own country. Um, and, you know, it's it's worth sort of remembering what American opinion about our own country was when we went into that war and, and why American public opinion was that way. Um, we are uh, 100 years into nuclear technology. This is not something that has ever ever existed in the history of humanity. And we are a blink of an eye into trying to function as a world with weapons like this at our fingertips. Um, I, I think at our fingertips and at other people's fingertips that uh, may wish to do us harm. It has caused an immense amount of paranoia, um, whether the Cold War, whether the Iraq War, it has caused cynicism and uh, abuse of power. There's simply no question about that. Um, but when we are sort of hurtling towards a world, uh, whether it's, you know, at the, in the domestic level, looking at the fact that we basically live off of monopoly money, at this point uh, with the the bailout of Silicon Valley Bank and perhaps indications that we will just bail anyone out, um, you know, depending on their size uh, going forward. So the fact that we're basically printing money, living off monopoly money, and then the fact that we're also, uh, that's, a, that's a technological issue for one thing, by the way, because we have the ability to technologically do that. We don't need to trade in gold um, or, or barter animal hides. Um, but on the other hand, the fact that we also in the sort of world stage are uh, are, are being frustrated, our, our leadership is being frustrated on the world stage. It's not something the American people are used to. It's something we did see happen uh, in, in World War II and in the Cold War. Um, but man, we should get used to it. Um, and we should pay very, very, very close attention uh, to what happens between Russia and China, North Korea, Iran. Um, because multipolarity is here, uh, but the direction it takes uh, is, is one that can hopefully be influenced um, by countries that are to be trusted uh, in the space. And we have 
uh, burnished some of our, we, we have uh, burned through some of our trust to be sure. Um, but when you look at the alternative options, when the world looks at the alternative options, it's like uh, what Winston Churchill said about uh, democracy itself. Or what was it, democracy or capitalism? What's the Churchill quote? It's the- Democracy. It's democracy, the best of the bad options. Um, so we'll <laughs> I hopefully not have to be that cynical about our own country. It is a great country and we're great people, um, but we have a lot of work ahead of us. Yeah, I'll I'll add just um, an aside since we're talking about you know, sort of the geopolitical alignment of, of the biggest countries um, on the planet and the potential multipolar world. Um, one thing that I don't think gets discussed enough, and I'm by no means an expert in it, but I think actually George W. Bush deserves some praise here. What he did under his administration was try to build solid relations with India. Um, if, if Russia and China are going to be linked at the hip for the foreseeable future, uh, it makes a lot of sense for the United States to reach out to the other enormous uh, country, uh, democratic country, even um and, and not too foolishly offend them. Um, and, and unfortunately, that's that's really what we've done. I think President Trump had quite a good relationship uh, with his counterparts, with Modi and others in, in India. Um, it appears that Joe Biden does not. Uh, th there was one incident in particular that I recall from April of 2021, um, where there were desperate requests from India. And however people feel about the vaccines now, there were desperate requests from India to ship um, some of the, the, I think it was AstraZeneca, it was some other um, vaccine that was not even uh, approved for use in the United States, but nevertheless, we had stockpiled uh, some you know number of millions of doses of it. Um, and there were requests from India to, to give that. And if you recall, early in the pandemic, uh, Trump personally uh, negotiated with, with India to get some of PPE supplies to the United States. So there was goodwill there and they had done us a solid. We did not do them a solid. I'm not clear why that happened, um, but I, I think that it's worth keeping an eye on US relations with India as increasingly we, we look at a multipolar world with sort of Russia and China on one side. Um, it would it would be it would behoove us to to try to make it so that it's US and India um, on the other side. And I don't think we've we've paid enough attention to that. Um, I do want to make one make one unrelated point to to global politics uh, in my final thoughts. Um, we have just there's just been a story that broke by uh, Aaron Sibarium over at um, the Free Beacon on whether or not the students at Stanford Law School that we discussed uh, last last time uh, will face any consequences for um, something that uh, the FedSoc chair, Tim, um, broke on a podcast that I do over at IW um, called At the Bar on legal issues. Um, he said that some of the students were screaming, not only screaming at Judge Duncan um, for a variety of other reasons, but also specifically they threatened him and his family. They uh, they they screamed. They, they hope that his his daughters get raped. Um, there are no consequences for that kind of behavior at Stanford Law School. They have ruled out um, any kind of consequences for the students participating in it. The uh, DEI dean is on leave. I um, I just kind of uh, see that as a, a papering over. Um, I'm pretty sure they're just waiting for this to uh, sort of. Uh, uh, pass right um that, that actually the backlash uh pass and then they're going to bring her back on board so no consequences at stanford law school uh, for this kind of behavior i think that has implications very clear implications for uh the doj uh for um da offices right for for citizens who are accused of, of politically unpopular crimes and all the other ways that the rule of law is critical to the american way of life um i, I think the fact that stanford law school is essentially endorsing this behavior for the next crop of of elite lawyers is is highly relevant well i'll pick up on that i i, I don't think it's 
quite as bad as Inez is saying. I would agree I would have wanted and I have said I've advocated for much more than this. But the fact that the diversity crat Steinbach is on administrative leave is a win. It's not like a total win, but it is definitely a partial win. And specifically kind of the 10-page letter that the dean of the law school, Jenny Martinez, has put out, which broke fairly shortly before we hit the record button on this show. So I haven't had the time to kind of pour over it with a fine uh, fine tooth comb, but I did kind of skim it pretty quickly. So there's a lot of very good stuff in there. I mean, she specifically says that the law school will not use DEI as an ideological excuse to impose a hegemonic orthodoxy when it comes to any number of issues. There's a paragraph that our friend Delia Shapiro kind of tweeted out. So it's a, it's a, it's a very good paragraph. I, I think if I remember correctly from what I skimmed, there was going to be remedial First Amendment free speech training for the students and the faculty, and I assume also the administrators at the law school as well. Pretty hilarious that the second-ranked law school in the country has to have remedial free speech training, the kind of thing that you wouldn't need to do for someone just in middle school or high school, but you know, I, I, that's neither here nor there for, for present purposes. Um, I do obviously agree that these students should be punished, ideally expelled, the, the model here is um, I was there in person, actually, in April 2019, when my friend Eugene Kantarovich, the law professor and um, you know legal writer when it comes to an, any number of issues, including the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So Eugene was at University of Chicago Law School giving a talk on the constitutionality of anti-BDS legislation, and this one provocateur of a law student organize, um, you know, effectively kind of a shout down mob where pro-Palestinian activists, I would get, I, I was literally there. I was standing there in person. I saw this happen and Eugene handled it like a pro and long story short, the students, the law students who organized this uh, University of Chicago Law School, they basically said that you are kicked out of uh, of class you are you are suspended for the remainder of the school year and you are not allowed to reapply for admission for another three or four years so de facto expulsion um i thought chicago should have made a more a more public face of, of this provocateur of a student so as to kind of hopefully try to galvanize support for this sort of punishment and in other institutions of higher education that obviously is the ideal model certainly these abhorrent, abhorrent, vile, loathsome credence who are shouting at a federal judge that he, they hope his daughters get raped for God's sake. Um, they should absolutely be expelled. I strongly agree with that. But, you know, one other thing is that kind of, you know, uh, voices for sanity, I'm not even going to call them right-wing voices, vo voices for sanity on the outside can and should be working to try to get these people's names in front of, um, you know, possible bar examiners for possible purposes of not getting admitted to the bar. You know, unfortunately, a lot of this behavior now is kind of de rigueur at a lot of large law firms. It, it, it is expected, let alone, you know, it's definitely not frowned upon. But at a bare minimum, you know, there were definitely at least some outside voices and, and organizations and actors who can try to still make a stink out of this thing, even if um, punishment is not going to happen for the students from Dean Martinez, notwithstanding her otherwise fairly sound letter. Um, well, first, I would just underscore Inez's point regarding the criticality of India and it, how telling it is that the Biden administration has taken, I would argue, something close to, if not overtly, a hostile posture towards Modi and India's government. And I can only think that the Biden family's dealings, specifically with respect to China, might have something to do with it. Um, leaving that aside for a moment, I will say sort of one positive and one negative about 
America's financial situation, which obviously impacts these geopolitical issues. Uh, I've long felt, and I've kind of been teasing this theory out, that ESG would not have existed as a movement were it not for the Fed's easy money policies uh, and really the blowing of a massive bubble to cover for the last bubble that collapsed in 2008, 2009, 2010 to some extent. Uh, that cheap money, now that it is over and interest rates have ratcheted up, may well have punctured the ESG bubble. And I think that that can be seen in the collapse of SVB, where you have a number of companies, a substantial percentage of their portfolio, their loan portfolio, their depositors, who were startup companies. Those startups themselves may never have gotten funded were it not for the easy money. And many of those startups, of course, had a very woke sort of tinge to them if not were outright in the green business, for example. So to some extent, the ratcheting up of the interest rates is may well kill ESG to a point, while at the very same time, of course, the administration through uh, the veto of this bill provides somewhat of a lifeline to ESG, a boon to ESG. Uh, I will say also, however, that the fact that we are talking about potentially bailouts in perpetuity now, and they are bailouts of uninsured depositors only indicates further America's total financial insanity with respect to the public spending, obviously the moral hazard and the kind of behavior that's going to encourage. But even beyond that, the fact that our finances are in horrendous shape, only accelerated, of course, by the Chinese coronavirus response. And this at the same time that Russia, China, et al. are working to de-dollarize and decouple themselves from the US and the US dollar. And the US dollar, of course, as the global reserve currency is really the backbone of our ability to project power globally. And no small part, of course, because it's so critical to our economic standing. So all that said, a positive of the ratcheting up of interest rates is the perhaps decline of ESG. But the negative is that we're not accounting for the fiscal recklessness and irresponsibility which of course is always the long-term problem that no one cares about in the short term, but ultimately is going to lead to a serious reckoning. And ultimately, I believe the diminution of American power. All right. Well, on behalf of Emily, Inez, and Ben, I am Josh Hammer. We'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.